NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org. The Denisons, the Denisons, the busiest in the biz. You do know who it is, it's Dennis Quaid. That's him. Hello, everybody. My guest today on the Denisons is the athlete, social activist, and actor Jim Brown. How do you sum up the accomplishments of a man whose influence transcends both sport and culture? Born in 1936 in St. Simons Island, Georgia, Jim Brown was seemingly a legend from the get-go. Brown was an unstoppable force at Syracuse University, where he was an All-American in football and lacrosse, also averaging 15 points a game for the basketball team, and he finished fifth in the nation in the decathlon. Not since Jim Thorpe had the country seen such a dominant multi-sport athlete. While at Syracuse, Jim was also active in the school's ROTC program. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant and served his country four years in the U.S. Army Reserve. He had attained the rank of captain when he was honorably discharged four years later, and by this time, he was well into his professional career with the Cleveland Browns. Jim played for the Cleveland Browns for nine seasons. As a professional football player, Jim set about every record possible for a running back, and to list all of them here would take about 10 minutes. But here's one that stands to this day. He is the only player in NFL history to average over 100 rushing yards per game for his entire career. That's going to be hard to beat. Jim walked away from the game at the age of 29 at the very height of his powers. His next quest, Conquering Hollywood. His first film, Rio Conchos, did very well at the box office, but it was his second role in The Dirty Dozen, in which Jim played one of 12 convicts sent to France during World War II on a suicide mission that really made him a film legend. It was a huge international hit and to this day stands as one of the most beloved of the genre. As a 12-year-old boy, I saw The Dirty Dozen five times myself, and that was in the movie theaters. That was well before Blockbuster. And I became a huge fan of Jim Brown. He went on to star in over 40 films, including Oliver Stone's 1996 film, Any Given Sunday, which also starred yours truly. And that's where I finally met my boyhood hero, Jim Brown. But these exploits pale in significance to Jim Brown's constant activism and social justice work. In 1967, boxing's heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali, was stripped of his crown for refusing to report to military service based on his religious beliefs as a Muslim. Now, this was at the very height of the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement that was tearing apart the social fabric of the American 1960s. Muhammad Ali, it appeared at the time, was quite possibly going to jail or never going to be allowed to box again. Jim Brown reached out and called together the top black athletes of the era, including Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. They met with Ali to determine how strongly he stood behind his convictions as a conscientious objector. 
they believed in, and they stuck out their own necks and reputations, lending their full support to the heavyweight champion and starting a dialogue that helped sway the opinions and prejudices of boxing commissions, U.S. courts, and more importantly, the American public, and paved the way for Muhammad Ali's eventual triumphant comeback. Jim had become an iconic voice, not just for the black community, but for all Americans, an eloquent voice. He opened a dialogue that focused not on our differences, but on how people can work together to bring about positive change. He created the Negro Industrial and Economic Union in the early 1960s to help establish black entrepreneurs and businesses in the African-American community. He also led a voter registration drive in the South and became a mediator for gang members and helped young men through his Mayor I Can program. He has devoted the last 50 years to this work, and because of his knowledge and leadership, every American president since Lyndon Johnson has invited Jim to the White House for counsel and consultation. 50 years later, Jim is still hard at work helping people to help themselves. It is in this capacity that Jim Brown's voice still matters in today's American culture, maybe now more than ever. So without further ado, I'm proud to welcome the icon, the football legend, the movie star, the rebel, and social activist, my hero, Jim Brown. I wrote a song called uh, After the Fall, and it was After the Fall, how does it feel after the fall? How does it feel to be on top of the world and then feel like nothing at all? And nobody cares. Good deeds don't get you anywhere. Most times I feel so disconnected, can't have a thought that's uh, with, that's not politically corrected. Uh, yeah. I get told how to think, how to feel, what's a daydream, what is real. If you're not left, you must be right, and there's going to be a fight. Very nice. <laughs> and uh, Very nice. in the song, I say, don't look back. But uh, that's what I would like to do today is, is to look back. And... You, as a person that I really, one of the, the top, you and Muhammad Ali and just a few other people, black or white, rich or poor, uh, famous or not famous, you know, along with my mom and my dad, oh, my represent man. something really huge in my life. You affected me early on in so many ways that transcended uh, sport, you transcend politics, you transcend Race, you're a great human being, Jim Brown, and um, we need voices like you these days. Oh, you know, I appreciate that. We really do. I hope that you know the effect that you've had on uh, so many people in this world and uh, with, the, with the things you've done and the way that you've lived your life. And it may have been 40 years ago or, or you know, yesterday, but... Mm -hmm. It reverberates and it and it still echoes, and uh, you definitely touched me and affected me. I wanted to talk to you today about because the, the world has gotten so confusing yeah. to, to even to know what to think about Absolutely. what's going on. I can't figure it out. We went through a period of time. I was I was growing up, but I was very politically aware uh, as as a, as a young person back in the sixties. And 
we had voices. Yeah. And one of those voices uh, that were so clear, and one of those voices was was you. And uh, we had the courage to speak up and also to, to have a dialogue. And there is no dialogue yeah. anymore. Well, I think that uh, I'm glad to be here with you because what you laid out is exactly how I feel. But I've been thinking, knowing I was going to do this interview with you, I've been thinking about all of the things I could actually represent. And it still became very difficult. But I came to the conclusion that as an individual, if I live my life the way that I'm supposed to, and if I'm helpful to people, that'll be my big picture. The black male is going through a transition that's very interesting to me, and that says black lives matter. Mm -hmm. And of course, but when I was pro, when I when I when I became a young man, it was because of a white family, the Brockmans, and my mother was a domestic for them, and they treated me beautifully. This was in New York, in you know Long Island, yeah. Great Neck, Long Island, yeah. And so I only knew goodness from certain people. But they didn't fall in line of being white, black, old, or young. It was just a person. Right. And so I have a great appreciation for human beings. And I resent anyone that tries to make it just a racial thing or just a money thing because there's a human thing that uh, I'm going to hold on to until I die because there are good people that are not in good positions. So I'm open, Dennis, to this interview. I really appreciate it. I, you said that you, you grew up in, uh, you were born in, in St. Simon, I St. believe, Simon Island, Island Georgia. Georgia. You said that the way you grew up there, that you weren't even aware of racism, being raised by your grandmother. But what, what, what did you mean by that? Well, it's somewhat exaggerated, but... Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I had family, and it was my great-grandmother that was my family. <laughs> my father was gone. Mm -hmm. My mother was up in New York trying to make some money to bring me with her. Mm -hmm. And uh, my great-grandmother and I lived in the house, and she was a beautiful human being. And uh, we didn't think about race at that age. I was very young at the time. We just thought about people. And uh, there were a lot of good people on that island. But if I dealt with it racially, it would have turned into something else. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, I just accepted the kindness and uh, appreciated it. And until this day, until this day, I have a tremendous love and respect for those Caucasians who treated me like a human being and who helped shape who I am now. That's really what it's all about, isn't it? About treating each other as human beings. Yeah. Number one to start out with. Absolutely. Yes. It'll get back to that one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. It always, it always does come back. <laughs> you'll either treat you good or you'll mistreat you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and 
you know, went through a period of, uh, I grew up in that time of, of uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, I remember, uh, grew up, I grew up in Houston, and I can remember going with my mother to the, the grocery store and there being colored bathrooms and colored, yeah. what they call colored water fountains. Black people had to sit in the, in the balcony of theaters and separate concession stands. And I remember being so, I just didn't understand why. I understand, yeah. I just didn't get it at the time and and why people had to be other it was a sense of other there's it that uh well i'm listening to you and uh i try to know a little about history see black people doesn't fit into society as a jewish people right you know we were slaves and uh different tribes from africa and no foundation that we could, you know, actually rely on. And around the world, those countries that took slavery didn't want you to have any identity that would allow you to have an uprising at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I came up in St. Simon's. I became aware of goodness and I became aware of racism. Both were happening mm-hmm. almost at the same time. And I know I had a great appreciation for those people who were Caucasians. That really gave me a lot of love and a lot of respect. They were just good people. And then there were people who were, you know, there were, there were people that would, that would hang. That would be hanging, hanging on a tree. I had to come out of that. But because of my environment in St. Simon's and the good people that, that were there, I never got really messed up. I always understood kindness and integrity and those kind of things. Because along with those, there might have been the majority that were racist, there were those who were just good human beings that did not want to see slavery, who were not racist, and did everything they could do for those who were slaves after slavery. So I have a great appreciation for my being here with you because basically the people that allowed me to be here were not black people. It seems to me that African-Americans coming here as slaves, America is a, is a country that everyone that has come here, the immigrants who have come here, whether they be Italian or Korean, uh, you know, from Europe or from wherever, it seems that they have lived together in a neighborhood, say the Italian neighborhood, and started on the bottom rung of the economic ladder. And then another group came along, and as one moved up, the other one would be at the bottom. It would be the Irish, the Italians, the this. But African Americans never got to have the immigrant experience because they were slaves. You hit it. It was key. Yeah. That chunk of life was not given to us. So we had no true identity. Because if you were uh, one African tribe and somebody was another, that's just like being, you know. And other people brought over their tribal uh, backgrounds and their historical tradition. And the slave, the slave, all that was ripped away because without that you have no bearing for your revolution, you might call us. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a way of controlling individuals because they, they couldn't come together. Because if you were Mand- Mandela, uh, you were another African tribe, you might be worse than a Caucasian and an African American in America. Right. You know, so it was very well thought out and very effective to uh, transcend itself to black people in our neighborhoods killing each other. Why would we be the only group of individuals that uh, I have to be very careful when I go into an African-American community? It should be a community of people trying to do the best they can to help each other and to prove a particular point. Well, the point that, they, that we prove is we, we can play good basketball and separate and make good money for somebody else. But meanwhile, gang wars are going on in the community. Mm-hmm. And we, as African Americans, didn't have the power to, to rid, rid our communities of those particular kinds of things. And, wh- and why do you think that was uh, outside of the obvious? Well, the e- economics always play a part and, uh, in any development, in human development, you know. But the main thing is that when you have a mother and a father, it's different when you have no mother and no father. And so we, a lot of a lot of the African American children came up without having a true identity. And when you have no true identity, you, 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 what do you do? If you take the Jewish community, the Jewish community has a strong identity, and they know how to look out for each other, mm-hmm. and they know where to concentrate their efforts and so mm-hmm. forth and so on, because they were all, they were all Jewish. But when you say African American, a black, a Negro, or whatever, it's almost like crabs in a barrel, you know. I'm glad you brought that up. One drop of black blood, you are a Negro. Right, which I have, by the way. So, <laughs> Welcome to the family. Yeah. <laughs> so you did a little study. I believe if you got a little Creole, and, uh, Creole oh, yeah, and, oh, and American yeah. Indian and... Uh, Yes. Oh, yes, a million. Yeah, well, well, the, 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 I did my twenty-three and me, and 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 I was very surprised that, that it came back West Africa. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really something. But we smile about that, but there's a reality to that. In America, because of the nature of American, we have basketball players making millions of dollars because they don't have that natural connection to blackness, it doesn't compute to anything because it is moving from, from being black to being rich in general. Yeah, Snoop Dogg, for one, is a person who has made millions of dollars, still lives in the same community, basically, yeah. that he grew up in and has yeah. really given back yeah. to his community. Absolutely. And doing it quietly. And... Yeah. uh he is such a good, solid human being, and it, there, there's an example of someone who is really giving back to his community and growing his community. Yeah, but here's the deal. You're absolutely right. 
there are great human beings across the board. So if you say Magic Johnson, there are things that I know Magic have done that are really beautiful things for the community. You know, we have a lot of individuals that have become conscious of putting back and helping and emphasizing education and so forth and so on. But it's only a few. Yeah. It's only a few. And the way out of poverty, because basically we're, we're talking about poverty. Yeah. Are we not? Yeah. I mean, just look at the boxing world. You know, it used to be a way out of poverty for the Irish. You know, you go back to John L. Yeah. Sullivan and, and, and uh, Rocky Marciano, Italian. Yeah. It was a way out of poverty, I'm sure. Who wants to yeah. go in the ring or living with your fist like that unless you have the will to do it? I'm going to get hit myself and I'm going to quit. So the point you but make. But the point I'm making is that it was also for the, for the black community at, an avenue out of poverty it was sports entertainment. Yep, but what's missing? An economic community, is that it? You have an organization that you, you started back in the 60s. Produce, uh, achieve, and prosper. Yes, Black Economic Union. That's right. I, I would like to hear from you about that, because I, I think... We did more homework than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I went back last night and, and watched your interview with Dick Cavett at, with Lester Maddox. Oh. <laughs> at, and Truman Capodio was over there. He never said a thing during the whole deal. But Lester Mannix, a governor of Georgia, a, a confirmed uh, entrenched uh, segregationist yeah. would probably be the most polite way to, uh, to, to put it with him. And uh, the two of you were to have a debate. You showed such great patience. Uh, uh, talking with him. He walked off the show, in fact, at the end. But I got to tell you, it was was great television. At least there was was some kind of a dialogue there, even though he wouldn't let you get a word in edgewise. Yeah. And as as I was watching that, I was thinking about the world today. And it's it's very similar. About the same, isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. But there's no dialogue. At all these years, and uh, that's been... It's almost the same thing. How how come nobody talks about the economics of the black community? And why do you think that, that nothing's been able to be done about it? It's education. And it's the commercial world that we live in. And there's a shortcut to getting rich if you're an athlete or entertainer. And that's projected to youngsters. So they've put the education aside and not realize the power of community the power of business, and and they seek out the quick fix, the glory of being a super basketball player, super football player, so forth and so on. And of course, the exceptions to the rule, but uh, the foundation has not been laid properly so that our youngsters can understand the power of the Jewish community. And that starts with family and yeah. and your immediate... Uh, building that you live in, or or your block, your community, yeah. your church, your school. Yeah, you didn't try to live with any other anybody else. You live with yourselves and work together with yourselves. And my community, we're always trying to get with somebody else. You know, and when the black community should be the safest community in the world, it became the most dangerous. And that's like ridiculous. 
I mean, it's, it's embarrassing, it's ridiculous, and most people don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't talk about how you treat your brother, then what else is there to talk about? So why should, you know, if I go into the black community, I got to make sure they announce that Jim Brown is coming. I'll be careful. Don't you? According to what neighborhood you're you're yeah, going in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all had to be, be careful about what neighborhood they, we go in. They call it Crips and Bloods. And uh, that culture has substituted for real family, real family relationships. And uh, it was done purposely during the days of slavery, separation of family, of true family. Right. And easier to control when you separate that, that bond that most people in the family have. Right. Slaves could be uh, sold away from uh, their wives, yeah. uh, their, their mothers and fathers. Yeah. Uh, separated, uh, used uh, for whatever for whatever reason. Slave master knew what he was doing. Yeah, that was real. When you separate and you leave any of those individuals on, and from different tribes and you put them together, oh man, you got all the control because they have no identity other than the fact that they are slaves. And there's no self-esteem in just being a damn slave, you know. So I, guess I can't give the answer exactly because there's many other factors. Right. But what I'm saying to you is true. And uh, I worked in those ghettos across the country, and uh, there's so much black hatred, you know, just the color. It was purposefully fan, they fan the fire and that kind of attitude about yourself so you never become a real threat. Did it sort of generate a self-loathing? Yeah. 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 And uh, it works. It works. So during all my years, the Black Economic Union, the Negro Industrial Economic Union, uh, the athletes, getting with the entertainers and getting with the gang guys down in Watson, Compton, and so forth, they made a tremendous effort. Saved a lot of lives. But the system itself wouldn't get behind it the way they should have gotten behind it because it wasn't to their advantage to promote that kind of approach. Mm-hmm. They, lo- they lose all that free neighbor, uh, labor, and uh, that's money. And, and the control. Yeah, the, and, and the control, yeah. And the white attitude ba- back then was that, that I heard you say, and, and, I, and I think this is true, it, it, there is kind of an unconscious thing that the superiority that is sort of, yeah. including the, the, uh, the right to be generous, yeah. Towards uh, and magnanimous towards the races because of there's an inherent sort of power in that that is unspoken. Yeah, so it takes you a miracle, a miracle for you to get from under that psychological presence you're given. Yes. You know, your, your self-esteem is down under your feet. Right. You, know, you have no self-esteem. Right. You know, it's like living off handouts. And, uh, but that slaver knew what he was doing because he knew he had control. You take 10 slaves and one guy out there with a whip, and those 10 slaves are going to do what, they, what they're supposed to do. Right. That's psychological. Right. You know, that's, that's in the head. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been a struggle. But unfortunately now, as we sit here, it's almost like it's going backwards. But there is one law of hope. You know what that is? There is some hope. What is that, sir? I've been looking at television, and I've seen black young people and white 
young people protesting on the streets and working together. And man, it was beautiful to watch. My son was part of that, uh, the, the protest here in, uh, in Los Angeles. And I was really proud of him for, for getting out for getting out there and, and doing my, that. You give him my love and condolences because that's the one glow that I've seen that I love because those two elements can make a difference. Yeah, and I think we all got to keep trying every day, and we have to keep we have to treat each other like like human beings. Dennis, let me tell you, we truly have no choice because you become a billionaire. And we have a virus. Right. What do you spend your money on? Yeah. What do you <laughs> who, spend your money on? Who goes, who goes to the store? You, it's a very interesting way to look at it because the only thing that I know that helps us is if I apply the right principles to elevating my family to a situation where they can have some food and dress decently and live the way that a human being should live, you know, and appreciate that. The education, the emphasis of education and so forth. When I sit here with you now, my wife has done an unbelievable job in dealing with our two kids, and uh, she gets into the politics of it also. I'm sort of like outdated. I can appreciate what she's doing and guide her at times and the kind of moves to make. But now, when I'm looking at the black and white kids, young kids, and they're dealing, and I'm inspired. But then right after that, I'm looking at the country right now. And if you ask me what could we do right now to bring about a change, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't I, I, I'm at a loss. I would not know. It's become so politicized, and you're damned if you do, and you're damned and if, if you, you don't. don't. <laughs> and it's just uh, things that I don't believe in that have seemed to be taken over, and it's... It's fear, it's it's anger, it's... I don't know why we can't do something about it. I'm not sure it's it's something that can even be legislated. All politics are local, and it seems to start with your next-door neighbor to me. You know what? You know you know what? The, uh, there is a universe. There's a spiritual existence. You as an individual can be as kind as you want to to do other, help other people and live your life to the best of your knowledge and being kind to people and being being a righteous person. That's a choice. Yeah. So we're almost back to the days of caveman, wherein our society can be, be vanished, it can be destroyed with one more major shot of, of the virus. And look at the disruption of it. Yeah. It's like God saying to all of us, I've given you an opportunity. I brought you through slavery, I brought you through this, I brought you through that. I showed you what middle class is. You know, all you have to do is be kind to yourself and to your neighbors. And I would keep helping you. But since you figure you're like me, you're God, and you're, you're, you're superior to this other individual, I have to maybe do something <laughs> to show you that uh, it ain't that They can way. all be taken down and, and just... A, yeah, so put a... Yeah. <laughs> put a rag on your face <laughs> and that's your technology <laughs> you walking around with 
And then we're laughing, but it's, it's, it's damn near funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best we can do. I had a couple of interviews when all this was going down. I was getting married, my now wife and I, we had to cancel our wedding plan. So, it, and I was doing interviews for Audio Up, which is our podcast platform that we've started. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, yeah, I got you know the questions, you know, what do you think about with the pandemic and all this and how has it affected you? And I, and I, I said that, I really believe that a spiritual revolution is occurring in this country, and that's what's going to come of it. Then all the shit hit the fan yeah. with all this, and you know, uh, I still believe it's this is what a spiritual revolution looks like, and you better be careful about what you ask God for because he just might give it to you. No, you're right. It, it, it has to be spiritual. In my opinion, you're right on it. I think that's the only answer to all this mess. To what we're looking at. Is, is, is a spiritual revolution. Only God can do it. And God working through all of us. That's right. Fortunately, as an individual, it doesn't matter what state you might be in, there's a better way of doing something. There's a kinder way. There's a more intelligent way. I mean, so... Those options are still there on a certain kind of level. There's a more patient way. Yeah, you know. So the whole thing about the basketball, you know, Magic Johnson's a great basketball player, you know, Dwayne Wade, and that's true, and, you know, superstars. But all that stuff is like BS. There's more lip service than there is service? Well, I think that uh, without a certain foundation, it becomes desperation. It becomes a lack of how to utilize the power you have. But the way that it truly can happen is that the, the spiritual route is the route to me. Well, to we honor. need mentors for that, though. In the absence of a community, in the absence of a, a mother or a father that one is has or has not grown up with, we need mentors. I grew up uh, most of my life, you know, my mom raised me, uh, my, you know, and uh, my father and I had a a relationship later on in life, but I, Mr. Pickett, my acting teacher in high school, was my mentor that that I look to and still look for for that kind of guidance in the principles that he taught me. I, I sought them out. You, you certainly were have been one of my mentors, okay. if starting even before I, I met you. But let me interrupt you. We're not gonna necessarily solve the problem. Now, right, tomorrow, tomorrow. Right. You got get you turn the direction of the journey so that each day that you're working, you are making a certain kind of progress towards what the way it should be. But that quick fix kind of thing, the commercialization that we've gotten involved in throws us off because we look to money and the billionaires and trillionaires and whatever they have, and what do they, what can they do? without an audience of people out there that can keep their money rolling. So it's, right. it's, it's a trick because ultimately your greatest riches are in your heart and soul, the way that you treat other human beings, the way that you live your life, that nobody can change other than, you know, when you deal with God. And so as you get older, as I'm, I'm old, I'm 84. You know, I'm 84. If I didn't understand what I understand now, I might as well just go commit suicide. But I know that I have a place and a lesson to be an example by the way that I live, the simple life that I live, how I treat my kids, how I treat other people. I mean, I have a nice house on the hill and so forth and so on, but I've had that 30 years, 30 years. 
I don't have ex- extensive uh, resources to spend on doing commercial things, but I live comfortably and but I share a lot, you know, and I try to be conscious of my privilege as a human being because of, because from the time I was a baby until now, we've been through all kinds of situations in this country. But by applying myself, I was able to get through all of it against all kind of discrimination just by not giving up and applying certain principles. And uh, I know that man's humility as a man is, is one of the answers. I mean, I know that how I treat my fellow, fellow man, how I carry myself, what I invest in, and so. You give, you give uh, your most valuable thing that you have, which is your time. Mm. And I go back to uh, Muhammad Ali when he was going through the, the times that he went through with the draft, yep. which was a very divided country. Yeah. And with the Vietnam War on top of, of civil rights and uh, champion of the world, a loud mouth to yep. a lot of people. Yep. He, he resisted the draft, and uh, he was v- very much in danger of spending time in jail for his, yeah. his beliefs. Yep. You had a meeting with him, and I don't believe that you knew Muhammad Ali very well up until that time. Is that true? Well, I knew him, but uh, that got me to know him a little better. Yeah, but you got the the athletes of the day, the, the biggest athletes in basketball, baseball, football, and you all got together and you had you had a private meeting with him. Yeah, I think it was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar yes. uh, and uh, yourself, yeah. and um, had a private meeting with him to really suss out if he was for real. Yeah. or not yep. about his beliefs because you didn't want to hang yourself out there no. on somebody's show, <laughs> right? All of you uh, were risking your own careers by yep. standing up for him. Yep. Took real courage. That was the point where as far as helping your, your fellow man out, that was an incredible thing. We need more of, of that in the world today. Ali wound up actually coming out on top of that yeah. and i don't think he would have if if not for your support and, and the others support i loved him so much oh, he was a special guy i think as time goes by he's gonna become even more the greatest if you ask me i think he was a spiritual gift from god to the world it really he was. was special yeah because uh he made it move yeah <laughs> you did too mr brown for me as a human being living in these times, I think the world needs to hear from you more. I really do. I don't think that uh, you're outdated at all. You know, uh, the world may change, but God's laws never change. There's a simplicity to what you say, a humanness to, to what you say. We need that kind of courage. And I wonder where the leaders are today. I'm not talking about just the political leaders. I'm talking about the the leaders out there in the world. Let me tell you something very simple, real simple. You're sitting here in, in, in our living room, and we're talking about things we want to talk about. No censorship, no nothing. Right. And you said some things to me that uh, encourages me 100%. So it doesn't have to be Kareem and Bill Russell and all the guys. It can be you. And me. And you. That's right. See, so if you're brave enough to open it up and you make sense, then you might touch a lot of people that normally would not want to step up. 
But I know that in my heart there's two choices. One is God has given us a warning that if we don't heed it, one strike of us eliminates this world. This is our planet, and we have had enough spiritual actions in our lives to understand what goodness is and how to apply ourselves to it. And all you're supposed to be able to do is ask for an opportunity. And we've had most of our opportunity, and we've kind of used a lot of it up. We don't have that much left based upon what we're looking at out there. Because when you and I can sit here and say, we're not sure about really what's happening, we should be, should be clear. Should be the bad guys over here that we're getting rid of and the good guys over here that we're supporting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you don't know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Yeah. And so here we are. At least you and I can talk. Uh, I just think, you know, you talk about opportunities, and I, I think opportunity is an opportunity to serve someone else, no matter how yeah. big or small it is. It might be, you know, opening a door for somebody. It yeah. might be yeah. just a nod towards each yeah, other, they, like they hello go. in there. There you go. Hello in there. It might be an excuse me in, instead of, instead of a look now you got it, it might be catching oneself in anger and yet opening up yeah and starting small and starting local yeah with your next door neighbor with the stranger across town with a man at the cash register it's not complicated i guess it's not it's uh, i guess it's not but it does take it takes patience but you know what the process is sweet. The journey is sweet, not the destination necessarily that you get. You don't have to get to the definition to enjoy the journey. The process that you can have. Say, like, I didn't know what you would be talking about today, right? Right. But look, but look what I walked away with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a powerful thing because you and I haven't argued any major points and that's two of us. Well, I think everybody, everyone in this country is, I think everyone wants to get along. I think everyone wants, this is a country that, you know, it's based on our ideals of, of, of uh, everyone's civil rights and every, every, all men are created equal. And I think everyone wants that. Why this keeps hanging on. I really thought we were making a lot of progress. We made a lot of progress. We made a lot of progress. <laughs> and then we on the way. God threw this pandemic at us, and it really just exposed, it ripped a lot of scabs off that seemed to be there. You know, the, the test is not necessarily based on just this world. You know, you, you've heard of a thousand years, right? Mm -hmm. What are we talking about, 200 maybe? Yes, sir. Something like that. Yeah, let's go back to the barbarians of, of 2,000 years ago and the way the way things were. Driving a bucket, man. Yeah. See, you, you get rid of it. God gets rid of it. Okay, you, you wore it out. I'm going to start over. Yeah. It is my opinion that about 200 years from now, everybody in the world, or at least in this country, we're going to all look like the New York Yankees. <laughs> a little bit black, a little bit white, a little bit Latino. A little bit Asian. And uh, then I wonder what we're going to make other. What are we going to do then? Will racism be dead then? Or will what will the problems be then? Let me, let me, let me, let me tell you something. See, I'm much older than you. Doesn't mean I'm smarter than you, but I'm older. 
we can't look for the conclusion. It's the journey, not the destination. Okay. So the journey says we have an opportunity to rectify this ship. Okay. You and I sitting here as a part of that. Why not? And you're saying that the opportunity is now and that that's yeah. the beauty of the journey and the wisdom yeah. of the journey yeah. is that the opportunity is now. Yeah. The conclusion is in the journey. Yeah. The conclusion is not a destination. Absolutely. Because what what are your goals other than to be on earth where human beings are treated well and you can be happy and you can have a family and you can have whatever, whatever, whatever. What else do you want? That's everybody's goal. Yeah. And what else could it be? Yeah. You know, I mean, you make a diamond and uh, it's big, you know, it's, that's $20 billion. <laughs> really? <laughs> but, you know, but for us to humble ourselves, and understand that uh, God is all-powerful, and that we're talking about 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. We can go one way or the other now. We can go out and let the disease take us. Cats with money won't have money. We won't have to wait. Come back, start on another 1,000 years. That's, that that's, might sound ridiculous to some people, but uh, I imagine when people were enslaved, slavery, and on a plantation, and thought of one day, you know, Magic Johnson might be a millionaire, billionaire. We might be talking here. You had to have an imagination to understand that. Hmm. So a hundred years, two hundred years, is that a short amount of time? Is that a long amount? A short amount of time. About seven or eight generations. That's it. Yeah. Well, you're in the process, and you have a certain kind of choice. I have a choice, but I just realized it about six months ago. But I have a choice to be the best person I can be. Do you know how many times I have shut my mouth when my wife got ready to talk? <laughs> I have shut my mouth <laughs> because I'm going to come with some intelligence <laughs> which was unnecessary. You're going to go to school on it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and I'm out here, you know, I'm, I just shut up, okay. <laughs> and it's okay <laughs> because I learned, you know, how to move it forward without having every base being be touched. So she has her development, and it's not wrong necessarily, this is where she's at at her journey, and where I'm at in my journey. We're not in the same place. Sometimes we think we're at the same place with people, but it's something, you know, how am I gonna have 30 years on you? And mm -hmm. You have different references. Yeah, different references. Yeah. So if we understand that and have a little more patience, the world will be a better place. We don't have to solve every problem the minute it occurs. No, it, and we can't. We've got to be humble about that. Time becomes and a part of it. I guess it's presumptuous to, to even think that I knew the answer, and you don't. I, I think it is a spiritual problem. No, it's a spiritual problem. Politics, it operates on its own. That's another ball game. And uh, when you say spiritual to me, I'm not really talking about religion as such. I'm talking about recognizing a higher order, superior being, God. And uh, my only salvation is to make that service. What else can I do? So you have a billionaire and then you have uh, 20 yachts. I played some pretty good football, but so what? What kind of man was I? When I come back and I find individuals that I can really sit in front of them and look them straight in the eyes and know that 
I did all the right things with them. That, that's a real friend right there. I didn't have anything that I did wrong to him or her. And it's, it's pretty good to feel that way, you know? Yeah. That you could, you could come in here and, and I don't have anything to hide from you. And I like you. That's pretty good. That has to do with self-esteem. Where does self-esteem come from? I wish I knew, but I hadn't thought about it. But uh, I will think about it. And when I talk to you, I'll tell you. I think my self-esteem came from my mother. My mother made me feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. Just for being me. And I know so many times in my <laughs> life that I, you know, I wasn't. She knew everything about me yeah. throughout my life. And always loved me just for me anyway. Made me want to be a better person because of the way she thought about me. Well, you know what's so funny when you, you bring that out? My thought and my self-esteem was built around the fact that I had a big head. But it was a negative self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> they used to call me big head. And, <laughs> and I could roll tires real good, so I had a stick and a tire that I used to roll real well. Sort of compensated for it. Did you have natural athletic ability when you grew up? Would you, about what age did you discover that you had natural athletic ability? That you were like faster, stronger than the other boys you were growing it up? It was with? like, uh, I don't know, I was very young. And like that tire that I was banging, I had to have a stick and roll that tire mm -hmm. and, and race it. And then at some point, with the young men that I dealt with, we used to have foot races. And so one hand, I got a big head, big head, you know, Nathaniel. And on the other hand, I have a foot race, I could beat everybody. And so it was mixed situation at the time. One thing was big head, you know. Uh, yeah. The other thing is I can outrun everybody out here. And uh, as I grew older, I gained more self-esteem, I gained through the fact that I could be an athlete and I could think. That made me rough. You're rough as they come, man. <laughs> you know, in my, in my opinion, and I think most of the world's opinion, the greatest football player there ever was well, of all time. And you've been, I, I know you've been voted that by this, that, and that magazine and all the rest of it, but you have a, there's a will about you that you could see in the, when, you, when you played when you uh, ran the way you didn't go for the you you didn't go for the out of bounds era you fought for everything and you made yeah. there was a will but you know what you touched the will i have a will i was an unbelievable will and uh it's not ego it's not whatever I have. right but uh it's, i'll get after it i'll get after it and i discovered how effective that could be at a young age. Mm -hmm. And so coming up, I should have been just down on myself and negative and whatever because my father had left my mother and my mother was up north. My great-grandmother was her and I in the house, shack house, it was kind of raggedy shack. But, you know, worth a lot of money right now though. But, you know, some kind of pride about performing and being somebody I always had. So I grew up accepting challenges and i knew i had to work at it i had to work hard but i was willing to do that so like in the backyard i set up something that would 
throw me a ball through a hoop. I had things I set up, racing other individuals. And when I have, and that particularly always had that, that particular spirit, you know. And when it wasn't for glory, it was for me. Right. And I've seen you, I've, it's not only in football. We've played chess many, many times out there <laughs> on the set. You brought into that. We played golf in the morning. <laughs> you, you and me, James Woods, and, and, and Lawrence Taylor. But you brought that will to win. And you're right. It wasn't an ego thing. It's just part of you. And it's, I, I can't tell you how like attractive that, that, that can be and inspiring, really. That kind of will. To, it, there's a passion in it that has to do with a passion for life. Yeah, you know. I tell you right now, if, if you're sitting here, my family is intact. My, my, my daughter's doing well. My other daughter's doing well. My son is doing well. My wife has got all she can handle. She's overworked. Yeah. And so forth. She's very involved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you probably know. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, I'm a cool you know, the, the house is paid for, you know, things are in order. But over the years, I had to work towards being able to sit here and tell you that today. But it was okay because it was like my duty. I didn't measure my efforts or any of that with anybody else. It's just that I knew I had to make the efforts and be smart about it. And uh, I never overextended myself. So today, I know that I only have a few years, but it's okay. Because those that I care about will be okay. You know, I will leave them with the ability to make their life stay solid. And the uh, way my wife can do the work that she does. And my kids can explore whatever they want to explore. So I feel, so you caught me at a time where I feel very good. You seem, you seem at peace. Yeah. You seem at a place of, uh, see, we were doing uh, the Any Given Sunday. That was 1996, yeah. seven, something like yeah. that. So we're talking about 23 years. Uh, you're 80, 84 now. And I'm yeah. 66. So <laughs> you were you were about around my age back then. And I know that my you know my blood is. is it, I guess you call it wisdom. I think. I guess it's acceptance about about life more of or just a honing about what is really important in life. Yep. A honing, a pruning. Yeah. Well, you know, you're a different kind of dude anyway, right? What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were you, you were an individual. You know, like, seeing to me you live your life the way you wanted to. Yeah, I, I guess so. I try to think for myself. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I'm always right. You wouldn't even, you'd never be calling anybody flunky, you know, so. <laughs> well, I always try to do the right thing. Yeah. And I haven't gone about it in the right way sometimes, but <laughs> I try to do the right thing. Right. And, uh, you know, I just, I think I want to live a simple life. Yeah. And the, the, the older I get, the easier it becomes to live a simple simple life because I don't need all that stuff. There's stuff that I thought I needed back when I was Isn't that something? my youth that I, that I just thought I couldn't do without, in fact, yeah, and that yeah. I just don't need anymore. Uh, that's where I'm at, man. It's like, it's a powerful position to be in. Yeah. You know, and it's not powerful because it's power. It's that when you deal with your existence and where you're headed, you can't do anything with age. That's such as it comes. Yeah. And what are you going to do with it 
and what have you done with it? To me, I'm saying to myself, and uh, thank goodness I've straightened some things out of my life, you know? Yeah, I hear you about that. So now, it's like I'm really cool because I don't hinge on enemies. I don't know what enemy I have. Might be because of my memory, but... <laughs> yeah, some of the people who I thought were my enemy actually wound up being my biggest inspiration. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I overcame a lot of things because, you know, sometimes when people said, because yeah, I couldn't. I don't believe we're going to solve the world today. We're both confused about what's going on. I guess we all we just got to let go and let God handle it. But we have yeah. to do what we can along the way. And that means today to make life a little easier for yeah. ourselves or for, for our neighbor. And I think it's little acts of service myself. That's, that's the reality. I'm going to pray about it. I don't think it's going to be solved through politics and all that. I guess no. I, th I think we're, I just going to have to let it go and be at peace with it. Well, I tell you... Uh... It's good that you know what you know, because you you have, you have no choice. But it's okay because when you reach that particular point, you you think you think of giving first, almost like you think of giving. God has allowed me to have something to give other than my spirit, and so I feel fortunate that I'm at this stage of my life. It could be just the opposite. Well, we we've, we've gone along here, and we've done a pretty good job of avoiding. Talking yes. about politics and the rest of it. I don't think anything good is going to come from, from talking about it anyway or anything no. is going to get solved. But I would like to see, with everything that's going on between left and right and black and white and rich and poor, I would just uh, love for us all just to get along. Make a small step in that. Well, there's two of us. And, and you, uh, you got some more. We want the same thing. Did it seem uh, back then in the 60s and did it seem unsolvable during all the heat of it i mean there was so much going on in 60 68 cities burning dr king getting shot bobby kennedy getting shot just two months later charles manson was the year after that there was the black panthers there was the ku klux klan the cities were falling apart yeah you couldn't walk in central park marches People were getting fire hosed. German yep. shepherds set upon them. Yep. Were things worse then, or are they the same? They were more physical during that era, uh, and it was more clear on what you were fighting for. Yeah. We were fighting for freedom, equality, and justice. Right. And uh, discrimination was a whip, and it was black and white, and a few exceptional people that crossed those barriers. But they were just good people, and they were always reaching out. So when I was talking to you about the white individuals, Dr. Collins was my high school superintendent, great man. Ed Walsh was my high school coach, white, white, great man. So through all the racial shit and all the problems that was going down, I never doubted the goodness of those two, 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 two human beings. And it was beautiful to feel that way because I didn't rely upon racism to decide about people. I learned early that I could look at people and listen to them and deal with them and find out how good a human being they were, you know. Mm. But without those two individuals, I don't know if I could have done it. So it was like... It did seem clear about what people were fighting for back then. Yeah. Maybe that's why it's so difficult to talk about, about it today because it, it does feel a bit unclear. Oh, no doubt about it. 
It's like, I'm, it's, uh, it's amazing how it can be this way too, you know? Yeah, I don't think it was so political back then more than it was just about basic human rights. Yeah. And um, Yeah, it was about, you know, human rights. It was about a war that we were um, involved in that became a war that people changed their minds about. The, yeah. the, the, the protest actually and the events that happened over there in Vietnam changed people's hearts and changed people's minds. Yeah. That we got out of it. There were different bathrooms for and different water fountains and yeah. different, <laughs> uh, it, different places you could sit in a theater and on the bus uh, and all that. Those were real things that you yeah. could that you could actually look at it go about the change it seems it seems almost ridiculous to think that things were like that I know. but that was something very clear that you you could fight for that yeah. that that were wrong now it's just uh, i i thought we were making so much progress and all of a sudden it's it's the same thing i know i know that there, there, there were a lot of uh, shootings during the the obama era and before that you know in in, in bush you know because they'd be on the news and there you know there's more video cameras and, and around now than there ever were and so all these yeah. things are you know instantly on the news you know for things that have probably always been going on you know, everybody clamors about doing something about it. and But, you know, I said, well, the, the difference is like all of those mechanical things you're talking about, you know, video you know, video tapes and so forth. But uh, I don't know, it's something else that uh, young white people seem to understand. And what is that? That probably because that, they, you know, with that being a human being, they have the ability to come out from behind the bullshit and back up some shit that they know is right, you know, and look stuff out there dealing for what? For right for the right thing to happen. That's all they can get out of it. I'm all for that. For protest, my my son was part of it here in in Los Angeles. I did feel like that got hijacked somewhat. Yeah. By riots and by yeah. destruction. Uh but that wasn't the protesters and the, you know am able to separate that out you know that those two things are, are different i don't know i'm just going to pray for this country i really am I'm going to pray for everybody on every side of the issue because we're all on the same side <laughs> really and i pray for whoever is going to be our next president i know whoever is going to be our next president we're going to be okay because this is america this is a very special place yeah. And we've been through all kinds of oh, yeah. things in this guy. Hell and high water. I mean, this is not more troubling than the 60s, is it? No, sir. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> and those are, it's not even close. This is how things get done. And yeah. we're going to be all right. Yeah. Because... We're going to get through the, we're going to get through the coronavirus. We're going to get through all this shit going on with with the the questions in hand between race and between the government and, and uh, there's issues that we're we're going to get done. We're Americans and we're going to not have a, uh, a civil war over <laughs> becomes the next president. <laughs> we're like just a small part of life, you know. This you know, generation, we're, we're talking like sixties and shit. Yeah, <laughs> young. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, but when we were young, it was a whole sort of 60, you know? Yeah, I know. It did feel like we were changing the world back then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just grateful to still be here. That's all. That's my point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Jim, I've, I've loved talking to you, man. I love and, it, Dan. Uh, yeah, I just, I just love sitting down with you. I don't, 
I don't really give a shit if it's newsworthy or not. I really <laughs> don't. I just, I just love spending time with you because you have been a mentor in my life. I've admired you since I since I was a young kid, and mm. you really have made a difference with your life, mm. sir. You really mm. have. You're a great American. You're a great human being. Thank you. And I appreciate talking to you today. y'all i'm uncle drank star of the ballad of uncle drank it is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast